my name is Katie Hale and I am a poet and novelist based in Cumbria. Um, I'm currently reading these poems and speaking this from inside a Viking longhouse at Moorforge um, in North Cumbria, which is very exciting and very atmospheric um, and I think probably something that should be on every poet's bucket list to read in a Viking longhouse. Um, I'm going to read some poems from my upcoming collection, White Ghosts, which is published by Nine Arches in March 2023. Um, it's a collection that charts my, my own family's history um, over about 400 years and between the UK and the US. So there are a lot of themes of migration, um, but also as a, as a white writer, tracing my family history there are obviously some problematic themes as well and themes of um, the enslaving of other human beings for example and of farming uh, colonial land farming claim land which was land stolen from uh, indigenous populations so i'm going to start with the opening poem from the book and it's called census 1810 in those days only white men were born with names. Tallied, free white persons, females. Tallied, numbers of slaves. Each stroke wide enough to hide a life. Each a rifle barrel aiming at a voice. Each a match lit to exhaustion. Each a cavity, rough rot in the tooth. Filling the mouth with bad taste with the tongue of omission. Um, I was lucky enough in 2019 to be funded by Arts Council England to go to the States to, to continue the research of this book. Um, I started researching it in 2016 um, and I started kind of looking into family history and, and being inspired by family history. And it originally started out as, I was expecting it to be a book about kind of strong women, um, often stubborn women, um, it's quite a matriarchal family, um, going back quite a number of generations and, and a lot of these women put up with a lot of a lot of rubbish um, from the men that they were married to really. Um, and so it's quite a, a, a proud collection that I was initially writing, quite a sort of a kind of, yeah, a collection of, of, of sort of female and feminist pride. Um, and then obviously you know, the more I researched it, the more I realised that actually there was a lot in the history that was not something to be proud of. Um, and that became actually what interested me is is how that kind of carries down um, through the generations and, and how, you know, if, if we if we can be proud of our ancestors, how do we how do we acknowledge the other bits that we're, we're not so proud of? Um, and that kind of became central to the book that I, I was writing. Um, so I'm going to start with uh, one of the, I'm, I'm going to start the next sort of bit of the reading of, with one of my oldest relatives, I suppose, or my furthest back relatives. Um, and while I was on this trip, I was also, I was reading other things as well that I thought might kind of feed into the book. Um, and I'd, I'd never read Uncle Tom's Cabin. It was one of those books that I felt as though I ought to have read and hadn't. So I, I, I did read it. And the character that really stuck with me was the character of Emily Shelby. Um, and she is, she's not in it for very long. She's right at the start. She's the, the wife of the, the master of the plantation. And she is, is portrayed as a sort of, um, almost a, a white saviour figure, really. Um, and is the sort of, you know, accidentally complicit or not really wanting to be complicit and wanting to 
to kind of improve the conditions for the enslaved people uh, on the plantation, but also being both powerless and um, and also not not fully committed. I suppose she has other priorities in her life. So this is uh, this is a poem called "Portrait of My Great 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 Grandmother." as Emily Shelby in Uncle Tom's Cabin. Um, and it's sort of, it, it's an erasure poem. So as each section goes through, um, different words get left out and, and it creates a different shape poem. A white woman stands at the casement, demanding, and is there nothing to be done? Her back to the window, shuttered shut, with braided hair in her blue silk gown, her rope of pearls, their prized white grit. Again, she asks her husband, is there nothing to be done? Hers is an ensemble story. The house girl slips a warming pan between the cotton. Some days, the sheets are sails, some days a shroud, and there is nothing to be done but let her husband slip between her body, between the body of the house girl he owns, the way he owns the casement, pearls, the blue silk gown. So nothing to be done but let her own white body bulge, a hogshead of leaf, a coin fat purse, a slow stone purling in her belly, already she is passing on the blood lie. There is nothing to be done. Through her blue silk breast, through the milk of a wet nurse, her own child gone, through umbilical blood, this is how the pearl will learn to witness, learn the nothing to be done. And so the white woman teaches the house girl her letters. Each word is a gift, she says, a ribbon glossy with its own white creed, a knotted blood cord at the base of both their tongues. Let your mouth give birth to the words, to the body of text. Read with me. And is there nothing to be done? A white woman stands at the casement, demanding, the window shuttered shut, braided hair, her blue silk gown, her rope of pearls, prized white husband, the house girl warming the sheets. The house girl owns nothing, her own body, belly, milk, and so the white woman says, let your mouth give me nothing. A white woman is nothing, her story a shroud, her husband owns the casement, pearls, the blue silk gown, her own white body, fat, slow. Already he is passing on her blue silk breast to witness the house girl glossy with both their tongues. Let the words, the body, be done. And is there nothing to be done? Let the body learn to witness its own white tongue. A white woman stands at the casement, demanding a story, her own body, her own witness, own words. White woman demanding her own casement, her own coin fat purse, her own house girl. The house girl sails some days between her body, 
the body of the casement, the lie of her own child. The house girl says, no, give birth to nothing. Um, I'm going to read something slightly shorter next. Um, while I was while I was on the the trip across the US, um, there were some places I'd obviously planned to go and, and planned to research, particularly places that were mentioned in censuses where um, my ancestors had lived and, and had travelled as they migrated, um, well from France originally and then um, over to France and England and then over to Virginia and then gradually crossing crossing the US um, and ending up in Kansas where many of my family still live. Um, and and some of those places I planned to visit and then there were some of those, some places inevitably that kind of came upon me as, as surprises. Um, and I was trying to find exactly where my family had lived um, around this town in Kentucky. And uh, I went into the antique shop and, and she sort of signposted me to, um, to a, a small museum a few miles out of town that was uh, at, at the shrine. Um, and I, okay, I sort of thought, okay, I don't know much about the shrine, but there's a museum, I'll go to the museum. And she sort of said that a lot of people would have worshipped there if people who were passing through often, you know, they had a temporary congregation um, and I could go to the museum and they might know something. So I rocked up at the museum, looked around the museum um, that, you know, someone had to come out of his house. There was this big building, which I presume was the shrine, this museum and this one man's house. And that was all that there was for, for ages around. And he had to come out of his house and open, unlock the museum and let me in. And I kind of looked around um, and he, could, he, didn't, he couldn't help me with where the family had lived and whether the family had worshipped there. But just as I was about to leave, he said, have you seen the shrine? I said, oh, no, I haven't. No, I, I, no. And he said, oh, come and see, come and see. And it was this huge sort of big modern building. Um, and I thought, well, I've been in a lot of churches in my time, but okay, I'll, I'll go in and have a look. And what it actually was when I went inside, inside the the kind of big modern building, it was essentially just a shell. And inside that was this old sort of 1600s wooden church that they built the other building up around to, to protect and preserve it. Um, and it was just the most incredible, incredible space that I, you know, I very nearly didn't get to for so many reasons. Um, and, and he was telling me about the history of it. And, and one of the things that really fascinated me was it was a church that preached emancipation. Um, but it also ha had to conform to the laws of the state. So they, they had to segregate between the owners of enslaved people and, and the enslaved people. Um, and, and yeah, that, that sort of disjuncture between those two things was was what sparked this poem and it's called prayers and it's in the voice of i suppose worshippers at at that shrine prayers we believed in progress but the law was against us it was difficult for us this caged existence Sundays, we slogged the two rough miles to the church on the hill, donned good shoes to pray for emancipation. Up in the gallery, our enslaved prayed along. There were no stairs, and the door was shut to them, so they climbed a ladder to the window. And when the preacher said, equals, we shouted, equals. And when he said, brethren, we shouted, brethren. And when he called for abolition, 
Our affirmations burst in zealous flux to flutter at the timbered ceiling. And we were spectacular in our radicalism. Our fervour flayed the cords from our throats. It rattled the bottle glass panes. And the next week we returned and we beseeched the Almighty again. Uh, the other thing that was sort of on my mind um, as I was writing that poem was the kind of the phrase that's so often heard, unfortunately, on the news, particularly in the US, although also over here, um, of thoughts and prayers. You know, when, when something tragic happens, um, thoughts and prayer. you know, politicians always say that their thoughts and prayers are with the victims. Um, and actually, you know, when actually what is needed a lot of the time is action. Um, and that was that was sort of on my mind writing that poem. I'm just hunting through looking for the, the next poem while I, I talk. But um, uh, that kind of leads into the next poem um, in that this is also a poem that was inspired by that, what was essentially a, an Arts Council funded road trip. So thank you very much to the Arts Council. Um, but um, obviously, you know, I was staying in places along the way and some were hotels, but a couple of places were, were guest houses, which meant an opportunity to speak to other people, be that, you know, the people who owned and lived in the guest house or, or other guests. Um, and this this poem arose out of that. And I should give a, a trigger warning for gun violence for this poem. Um, and it, it, yeah, it arose out of a conversation with, with a man who was staying there. And it's called, In a Guest House in Charlottesville, Virginia, a telecommunications engineer shows me his semi-automatic handgun. In the coffee sour kitchen, counter a clean slate he tilts against. He tells me again about America's only ever mass shooting. His wife is a shut trap at the window. And only when a groundhog ripples the long grass under the trampoline does she say, cute. And he says how the dog once lost a groundhog to the earth, so he tipped in a full can of gasoline and a match, and his brother witnessed at the only other exit, loaded with adrenaline and shot and hit. Not one, but a family, a whole fucking family. And they're here now, running, Flanks quick with terror, each body a sweater flung back, slapped soft as a prayer on the grass, and still they keep coming. Tens of them, hundreds, a class, a tribe, a whole shopping mall, a nation. Their heads are silken, smoothed by a trembling of mothers. Their palisade is an undergrowth of wrought fingers, sanctum of hands each not quite touching the others. I wanted to end on something, hopefully a, a little bit more hopeful. Um, yeah, there's, um, I think it's very easy when you're, you're writing about quite problematic issues um, to, to become quite hopeless. Um, and I think this is, you know, something that you face no matter what the what the issue is. Some, 
something like you know climate collapse things like racism um any kind of, of prejudice if once when you're writing about that it, it can it can be very difficult to write about and it can um kind of drag you drag you under and, and i think actually if, if we're going to act we need to also also give ourselves a life raft of, of some kind and uh, and something to kind of drag us back up for air and, and, and allow us to to act so um i want to finish with a poem which is uh, it's a poem about my great grandma um my great grandma was i suppose probably the kind of stubborn woman that inspired the whole collection in many ways um just talking to family in the us about about everything she put up with but also um she didn't take anything from anybody either i think um i think she gave as good as she got in a lot of circumstances um uh, and i was kind of interested in her you know i never met her um but she she and i share a name completely accidentally um i was called katie with no knowledge that um you know my parents had no knowledge that that she had also been called katie um i possibly wouldn't have been called katie had they known that um but it is it is a kind of an interesting parallel um, and there, there are lots of deliberate Katie's in the American side of the family. I am an accidental Katie. But, um, but so yeah, I was kind of interested in her um, right from the start of writing the book and uh, interested in, in her life and, and what it's, what her life spanned. Um, you know, I think she was born in the late, very, very late 19th century um, and she died in 1968. And, and the, the change that her, that her life saw um, not just in terms of you know technology, but also in terms of the kind of social change as well and, and social movements. So, um, so yeah, I wanted I wrote this poem about about that really and about that kind of that cusp, of, that social cusp of the year of nineteen sixty eight and what had happened and what hadn't quite happened. Um, and I, I basically went and looked at the year and, and what what would happen during the year she died in the January. So so what she didn't quite live through. Um, and one of the things that that I was sort of fascinated by is that that famous photo of the Earth as seen from just above the Moon, um, taken from the Apollo Eight mission. Uh, and and I mean, I'm sure you'd recognise it. You know, you, you see see the Earth in the distance. It's called and it's called Earthrise. So that's the title of the poem, Earthrise, 1968. Uh, and this is the last poem I'm going to read. So thank you very much for listening. Earthrise, 1968. The year has barely begun to grip before her ghost drops through, pitches into the unexcavated sky, before her narrow death wheeze becomes a dusty, unlit road approaching the horizon. And down it, Martin Luther King is always still alive, drawing breath as my great-grandmother lets slip her last. Before the raised black fists of Smith and Carlos punch through the star-spangled anthem like conductors calling lightning from the clouds. And a thousand miles away and still unlit, Apollo 8 is caught in the act of being made. Though she has begun her long yearning towards the launch pad, towards the moon's occipital bone, towards home, Rising blue and spotlit from the night, looking for all the world like a live wire humming at the epicentre of the dark, a lustrous, unspent coin. Thank you very much for having me.
Thank you.